Amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning uh, to the book of James. And so we've been in long series here recently, and so this is a little bit of a shift. And uh, we're not going to jump right back into another series, at least a long one, not immediately. Uh, we're going to take a break again tonight also from the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll come back over the next couple of Sunday nights and finish that up. Uh, and so, but I want to continue uh, on some the ideas of, of prayer that we started the week before I was gone, it's a week or so ago. Uh, and so in James chapter 5, uh, it's a tremendous lesson on prayer. Uh, and it's, so it's kind of intermingled with uh, some healing and sickness. And some of this I'm just going to kind of talk through by, to give some context. And, um, and it, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that element of it other than uh, I'm just going to kind of show the biblical context of healing and prayer so that you can kind of understand a lot of what you see in the charismatic world on TV. It's just not the biblical way. It's not the way that God heals. It's not about a show. It's about, uh, it's about God's glorification, not man's. Uh, and so I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't want to attack anybody. I just, I want us to understand biblical truth. Uh, and so we'll park there for just a moment and then we'll move on. Our text verse this morning is verse number 16. Uh, we're going to back up, <coughs> excuse me, uh, a few verses uh, and read through the end of the chapter just to establish some context here. Uh, in verse number, in verse number 11, uh, and he's been talking about the coming of the Lord here in his closing verses, but above all things, or excuse me, in verse 12, but above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and let your nay be nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. So a man's word uh, ought to be his bond. What we say, we ought to see through, follow through, and not, not require contracts. It ought to just be, uh, well, when we say something, it, it's meaningful. Uh, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now, before I give you the, the title, which you, you see there on your handout anyway, and then uh, we pray to begin, I want to park there for, before we continue on. Because this is a, a, something that's really understood in a lot of worlds, and it's kind of, it kind of blown up to build up men uh, and to draw attention to men, uh, and it's just not biblical. God... God He's going to operate that way. He didn't operate that way. Most of the time when Jesus did something like this, even whenever he was on the earth, he told them, don't tell anybody. Uh, or if it was something like healing with leprosy, go, to the, go and show the priest the right sacrifice that the law commands. But other than that, keep it. Rarely did he say, hey, go tell everybody what I've done for you. Uh, and so it, it, it's, it, it's not to, to draw attention uh, to men like it's used so often today. Uh, and he says, when he says, is any sick among you? Uh, you notice what a lot of churches do in the world and a lot of the televangelists and things. They're calling all the sick to come to them. It's the opposite of what the Bible says to do. He said, if you're sick, you call. And so, well, Pastor, how does that look and function in a church? Okay, so we had someone not too long ago uh, that asked, and Pastor, can, uh, can we assemble the deacons and uh, and pray over them, and, and would you anoint me with oil and pray? Uh, and of, of course, and so we did that. We did it in the privacy of my office. And, and, and here's the thing. God can still heal. Jesus is still the great physician. He does heal, but it's not a show. 
you know, it's amazing how all of those televangelist people disappeared when COVID got here. Uh, and you haven't heard too much of them since. Uh, and so the faith that heals is not the faith of the pastor and it's not the faith of the deacons or the leaders of the church. It's the faith of the individual who's afflicted. And so if, if you're someone that you, you know the Lord and you become ill and, and the Lord lays and impresses upon your heart that it's his will to heal you, that's the appropriate time to call and to be anointed and to be prayed over. And so I'm not going to belabor that point. It, it's not the message this morning. But it is part of the context of it, so I just want to give a little bit of insight. If you're new to genuine biblical teaching, that, that might provoke more questions in you than it answers, and that's okay. Uh, we'll be happy to answer those and, uh, and look forward to the opportunity to do that. But if you have uh, kind of been around a while, you kind of get that and understand. Uh, but again, he says, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the <clears throat> Lord shall raise him up if and if he have committed sins they shall be forgiven him then he says in verse number 16 and this is our text really this morning especially the latter half confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are Elias here being Elijah and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of, any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from, his, from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sin." Uh, and that last part of verse number 16 is really what we're going to focus on this morning. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. Effectual, fervent prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity that we have to gather, to come together as a family. Lord, we welcome those that are new uh, to our assembly this morning. Lord, I pray that you would touch those that are unable to be here and give them healing. I pray that you'd open the hearts of us here this morning that are afflicted in our spirit. Some are grieving the loss of loved ones. Uh, what others are dealing with the, the, the effects of sin in their life, the heartache that comes uh, at the end of that. And Lord, others are uh, perhaps lonely, uh, feel disconnected. Lord, I pray that you would just help us as, we, as we're assembled here this morning to understand that we are one brotherhood, sisterhood in Christ that you are our Heavenly Father. And Lord, that there's not anything in our lives that you, that you will not either take care of or, or give us the grace to endure, if it be your will, and it be what brings glory to your name. Lord, I pray that you give us the grace to understand. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that's never trusted you as our Savior, that they'll feel conviction from the Holy Spirit, uh, that they'll confess and repent of their sins and find, uh, find and accept the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, may today be the first day of the rest of their life as a child of God. Lord, again, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. I pray that you would help my voice to stay strong. Lord, I pray that you would, again, that you'd help us and give us what we need this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> I started <coughs> uh, before I left, and we had to service them, and I preached about prayer, and we had the journals out there. And by the way, there, so we ran out really fast. We ordered more. They're there. 
Uh, if you start getting close to running out of the refills, we have those available, and I would encourage you to use those. But understand, that's just a tool. You can't just follow a step-by-step -step thing and think that just because I'm going following these steps that all of a sudden great things are going to happen in my life uh, because of prayer. Uh, prayer is a relationship with God in which I am communing with him. I'm in a, in a conversation with him, a dialogue with him. Pastor, does God speak back to you? Yes. Uh, is it an audible voice? No. But he uses a scripture. He, the, the Holy Spirit impresses things upon my heart. And, uh, and, and it's, it's just until you experience it, it's hard for me to explain it to you. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you cannot experience what I'm describing to you until you become his child. Uh, and we'd love to help you with that as well. But when you look here uh, in James, and uh, without doing a whole study on the, on the overall book, he comes here to the end and he's closing this out and he's talking about the, the end of things and the coming of the Lord. And, uh, and then he draws it back to this and he, he comes in and he, he deals with the issue of those that are sick. But the example that he gives is Elijah. So this clearly his intent is more than just in dealing with those that are ill. Because he talks about sickness and then he talks about the procedure. And then he says, <coughs> excuse me, or, or the example he gives is Elijah who simply prayed uh, whenever he confronted Ahab as God led him. Uh, and it did not rain for three years and six months. And then at the end of that, we know the story how uh, the big fight and the, the big challenge with the prophets of Baal. And then he prayed and the rain came and, uh, and all of those things that took place there. And so in a broad context this morning, let's understand what he's trying to communicate. So we're going to take some time this morning and define some words so that we really understand them. Because we have a basic understanding of some of these words. We kind of get effectual. Uh, we don't really use that word that much. It's not something that we uh, use in everyday speech. We would, we would use effective, but we would not really say effectual. Uh, and so I want to take some time. We're going to look at what these things meant in, their, uh, in the Greek language, in their original language, so that we really draw some more understanding. One of the great things that I learned whenever I met my wife and, and she was barely spoke very broken English at that point. And, and uh, you know, we spent a lot of time in conversation just explaining what different things meant in conversation. And it was very apparent that her language had a lot deeper meaning than my language. Uh, in other words, the, lang the, the words are, are more descriptive. And so just in the natural uh, flow of the Spanish language, uh, you know, they, they'll have multiple words for something that we'll have one word for Greek is like that as well, uh, and it does us well to kind of take a deeper look at some of these things. And so the word effectual uh, is the word energero, uh, and it means to work in. And if there's anything about prayer that's true, it's this, it's that prayer is laborious. Prayers work. You know, most people, especially, you, you get to a place, you grow to a place in prayer where it's very, it's, it's, it's very enjoyable and it's, it's something that you really look forward to and long for, but it doesn't start that way. So, Pastor, but if, I'm, if, I, if I trust in Christ my Savior, shouldn't it be uh, one of the great times of my day? Yes, it should, but it's, it's an unnatural thing. There's something in us that draws us to pray uh, because there's something in us, that, that the void in us before Christ that draws us to God. But the truth of the matter is, is that to get down and to get honed in and to pray... Uh, it, it, it's a discipline. There's a reason why it's called a discipline, okay? It is, it's not necessarily something that's very easy to do, to master, 
or to learn to enjoy. Uh, because most of us, if, if we bother to get down on our knees, we find ourselves nodding off. If you, if you, you know, lean forward, put your elbows on your knees and pray that way, you find yourself at times drifting back to sleep, nodding off or fighting it. Uh, and so it, it, it's, it, it, takes, it takes some effort. It takes some walking with God. It takes some learning of the Lord. It takes developing relationships. Every relationship that we have in our life, uh, outside perhaps the relationship that we have with our children as they come in as babies, uh, it, takes, it takes work. It takes effort. It doesn't happen accidentally. It's intentional. Uh, when I met my wife, I had to work to just meet her. Uh, and then I had to work uh, to, to, to get her somewhat interested. She had dated some guy that was tall, and back then I was skinny and had hair that looked a lot like I looked. And, uh, and he just, she couldn't take it for very long. And then, uh, you know, I come along, she's not in here this morning, so I can tell the story the way I like to tell it. Uh, and so you can, you can tell her uh, what I said later, uh, and then she'll tell some lies about, the, about what she says or the truth. <coughs> no, her story is probably a little more accurate. But, but we went to this the Bible college, and, and there were, it, it had been a Catholic monastery before the college bought it. Uh, and so everything in it was structured, all of the existing structure. So you have really long hallways uh, that are kind of interconnecting everything. Uh, and so she worked in the dining facility, which was a newer building, and it's, it's an octagon-shaped building, and it has uh, a kind of a, a balcony area up, and then it's with tables, and then it's got uh, all across the floor. And uh, back in those days, you didn't have these ice stations where, or Coke machines, soda machines that would make ice at their own station. Uh, and so they, they had ice stations all around the dining hall. So she worked in the dining hall, and she would, she would be on the serving line a lot, and, uh, and then she would, uh, she would take the cart and push it around and fill up all the ice stations. And that's, that's really how I noticed her. I noticed her as I was eating, watching her push the cart around, uh, and she caught my eye. Obviously, it was after the crowd dissipated. Uh, because if, if the, those of you that are new, my wife is like this tall. Uh, and so, uh, you know, until the crowd sat down, I couldn't find her. Uh, and then so everybody's seated and she's going around and she caught my eye and I, I want to meet this girl. And, uh, and so I'm walking down this long hallway one day and I come to where the security desk is. Miss Didi used to man that security desk. Uh, and so we're coming down the hallway and then you come and it kind of zigzagged and then it made another hallway made it hard left. And there was a huge bulletin board around that corner. And so she's there uh, with, uh, with Wanda Scully. Uh, they were from the same church in Puerto Rico. And, uh, and so about the time that I'm coming, Wanda pushes her right into my path. Now, they claim that they didn't know I was coming. And I claim that they did it on purpose so that I would meet her. Uh, and so that's, that's really how we met. Uh, and then I, it, was a, it was a pursuit. Uh, it was a lot like... Uh, the cat and Pepe Le Pew. Uh, it was just, uh, it was pursuit. She was not cooperative. Uh, and so she would go on a date here and there. And uh, then the, this was in November of 1985. Uh, it's amazing that I can't remember that far back. Uh, and so at Christmas time every year, they had this big activity. Michigan Avenue and State Street in Chicago is famous for all of the storefronts on those streets decorating their storefront windows very elaborately. Uh, and then out on the street, you'll have carts with hot dog stands and hot chocolate and uh, coffee stands and things of that nature. And it was just a big activity for the college every year. <coughs> so we had had a couple of dates and, 
and uh, I asked her, uh, asked her to this, this Christmas thing, and, uh, and, and she said no. Uh, and I was like, I was, I was devastated. And, I'm, and I was like looking at her like, like, what are you talking about? Because we had met early about mid-November, and now we're getting close to Christmas, and it's almost Christmas break. And she says, I'm sorry, but before we started, uh, before you ever asked me out, I had already agreed to go on this date with somebody else. Uh, and so I said, okay, I understand that. Uh, and so I went and I found the prettiest girl that I could find uh, that, was, uh, that was also uh, a, a brownish complexion like my wife. Uh, and I want to think she was from Hawaii, actually. Uh, and so uh, we got on the same bus and I made sure whenever we went on these big activities there, you would kind of be in groups. So they'd have a group with uh, a leader from the college and a chaperone of about 20 kids. And, uh, and so, and then you kind of go group by group and we'd ride uh, several different buses up there. So we were on the same bus. And I made sure that we sat in the seat right in front of her and her date. And I made sure that we laughed and had a great time and it was awesome. And then when we got to the city and we started going up and down the streets, I made sure that we were in the very back of the next group, of the group that was right in front of her group because she was in the front of the group. Uh, and so I was kind of pushing guys around and getting all the way back. So the whole night, she had to watch us. Uh, and so after that, uh, we were an item. Uh, and then after a while, she decided that she was done again. Uh, and then I had this roommate that wanted me to date his sister. Uh, and so, uh, and, and you know, they, they, they look kind of similar, similar complexions. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I took her on a couple of dates and she didn't like that as much as she thought she'd be over with. Uh, and so then after that, we were an item and 34 years later, here we still are. Uh, and so actually probably about 37. <coughs> but but it, it, was, it was laborious. I had to work at it. Uh, and so, and I had to try not to scare her off, but then when she tried to get away, I had to do something to draw her back in. Listen, prayer can be kind of like that sometimes. You have to learn how to pray and learn how to enjoy the company and the fellowship of God. But I'm going to tell you this morning that it's worth it. Yeah. And we talk about what effective means or effectual means. The beginning of the definition is to work in, to labor. Prayer is labor. If we think that we're going to sit down and it's just going to be on the, the immediate gratification of, hey, Lord, this is how I need to pray and this is what I want you to do for me. And then all of a sudden God's going to do it like he's some big genie in heaven and all I got to do is come and rub the bottle and he'll grant my three wishes. Then you have the wrong idea about what prayer is. Prayer is laborious in the fact that I have to learn how to pray. Now, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and we looked at the instruction that Jesus gave on how to pray. And we are going to just very briefly, briefly delve into that in Luke chapter 11 uh, this morning. But we're just basically going to read it. I've already preached it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But understand here, the word effectual means to work. It also means to be or to become effective. So the effectual, it is learning to be effective. The NFL draft just took place, and you know I, I generally like sports. I know a lot of people don't care anything about sports. <coughs> I like sports. I <clears throat> I like baseball a little, um, and so nobody else in my family really does. And 162 games over the summer, I get more interested in August and September than I am right now. Uh, and so I'll kind of track scores. 
I like basketball, play basketball. My boys play, we play basketball a lot together as they're growing up. But I really love football. My favorite sport to watch and to, is football. And so uh, I, I pay attention to my team. I, I follow who they draft. I follow who they're signing in free agency. I pay attention to who's, uh, who's leaving. And I don't spend tons of time on it, but I, I open the app on my phone a couple times a week and just kind of look and see if anything's going on at this time of the year. Uh, and I'll look and see what the schedule looks like and uh, what kind of, what kind of uh, uh, realistic schedule or record they might have. And it's never as good as they want to pretend like they're going to have. And, uh, you know, it, it's just uh, it's, it's one of those things that I, I just like to kind of look at it and to follow. Uh, and so, but, you know, they'll draft these players and these players will start getting into practice. And a lot of the players that they draft, they don't have any expectation for them this coming year. They drafted them in April for two or three seasons from now because they understand that it's going to take some time to develop their skills, that it's going to take some time to teach them how to play at another level. And so there are a few that are good enough that they can step right in and immediately they can make an impact. But most of the players that got drafted into NFL teams back in April won't see the field until a couple of years from now. At least not on a regular basis. Why? Because it takes time to become effective. And so, and it takes work to become effective. And so when we talk about effectual here, we're talking about working and learning to become effective. And then it means to be active. If I'm not actively engaging in prayer, I'll never become effective at prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17 says to pray without ceasing. Does that mean, Pastor, I'm supposed to walk around with my hands folded and walk around like a monk all the time and, uh, and, and kind of chant to myself in prayer? No. It means that I should constantly be aware of the presence of God and my conversation with him should be ongoing throughout the day. And so my, <coughs> I, my wife gets, I, I don't talk a lot by nature. And so, unless I'm up here. And I really don't talk a lot on long trips because I, my mind gets wandering. I get to preaching in my head or to thinking about things that we need to do. Or I get to uh, praying or I'm looking out the window and I'm taking in the scenery and, uh, and looking at, at, at things. And so, we'll have sporadic conversation throughout the trip. Uh, but, you know, on, on this trip that we just took, it was 1,175 miles each way. And so... We, there, there was a lot of hours together and just, just Sonia and I in the truck. Uh, and there was a lot of long stretches where there wasn't a lot of conversing going. Uh, there was a lot of snoring going on in the passenger seat. Uh, and, and you can tell her that you, I said that if you want to. But, uh, and so I, I, it, it's, you know, there's, but, you know, there's conversation here and there. And she's trying to communicate and work on things that she's got going on here as well. And, uh, but, but the presence, there's, we're aware of the presence of one another. And if something pops into my mind, then it's, if she's not asleep, it's just, okay, what do you think about this? And she'll be working on something, and we haven't, maybe nothing's been said in the last 30 minutes, and all of a sudden she'll just chime in, and she'll be like, oh, okay. And there's not really any preface to it. There's not really a, a, a need to say, hey, can I get your attention, or uh, anything of that nature. It's just kind of natural. And... That's the way prayer should be. It's, it's the constant, permanent presence of God in your life. 
And it should be as natural as having a conversation with someone that you've lived with forever. Uh, and and it not need a lot of uh, a, a lot of fanfare to, to get you. Listen, you, you don't have to turn cartwheels down the aisle to get God's attention. He's right there with you. And so to be effective in prayer, I have to come to a place where I'm willing to labor and learning to pray to become effective. But that means I've got to be active. I have to be actively praying. If you only pray whenever a crisis arrives, you're not going to be effective in your prayer life. If you only pray when you have a great financial need, you will not be effective in your prayer life. If I'm going to be effective in my prayer life with God, it's an ongoing conversation every day, all day, off and on. Uh, and it's natural. So, Pastor, people will think I'm crazy if I'm walking, driving down the road, just talking to myself. They think that anyway. Just might as well have some conversation with God. Uh, and so, uh, just, just learn to walk with Him. Effectual. Then he says fervent. And I, I understand I'm spending a lot of time. This is the, the, the central, most important thing this morning, just understanding these terms. And then we're going to tie it together. So, if you're waiting for point one, point two, and point three, it's going to take us a little bit. And when we get there, they're going to be fast, okay? Fervent. Fervent means zealous. And that's what the Greek word is. And, it, and that, it comes from a root word that means to be hot. We'll say things like, uh, in our Christian life, like that person's on fire for God. Why? Because they're excited about the Lord. Uh, they're, they're engaged with the Lord. They, uh, they care about spiritual things. Uh, and what it really has to do, or the connotation it has, is in what we saw earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, when he says, Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. So it has to do with the fact that there's this, there is this glow about my walk with God and my engagement with God that's noticeable to those around me, that people look at and they engage in and they see. Uh, and so when we talk about it being from a word that means to be hot or to boil or glow. It means I, the other thing about a boil and something comes to a boil, it comes to a boil slowly. And you can adjust the heat and you can get it there a little bit more quickly. But if you've got things right in, in, your, in your mixture to make some good gravy, or if you've got things right in your mixture to make good chocolate cream pie, when, it, when it's best, when it's done, when it's time to stop cooking it, is generally when it starts to come to a boil. And you're standing there stirring it, and there's an old saying that a watch pot never boils. It eventually will. You know, I generally, that, that gets to be my job on holiday times or things of that nature. It's like, okay, she's busy doing all this other stuff, and she's like, okay, stir that. Stir it for how long? Until it boils. Well, and three days later, it finally boils. Uh, at least that's what it feels like. Uh, and so, but generally, that's when it reaches the, that, that thickness. It's, it's as good as it's going to get at that point. And it, the walk with God, most of the time, as we learn to be effective in prayer and walking with him, it's, it's growing in us. It's, it's coming up in us to the point that it's going to, to boil. It's going to be hot. It's going to produce something that causes others to take notice. It's going to glow like a light on the hill. It's going to bring steam that's going to see that smoke coming off. It's going to cause people to look and say, hey, there's something that's going on here. It's to be zealous. It's to be, uh, and it means to be an imitation of that, which is excellent. Now, you say, Pastor, you, we're, we're just imitation. We're just imitations as Christians. We're just, we're, we're not real. No, you're real, but you're, you're an imitation of Jesus. 
to be a Christian means to be a little Christ, to be like Christ. And so think of it this way. Years ago, before he died, and it's still, you still see him some, and there's still some galleries around some places. You just don't hear as much about it as you used to. But the artist Thomas Kincaid, uh, he was known as the painter of lights. And he's kind of known in his artwork for having uh, just an effect in the technique that he used and the paint mixtures that he used that caused the light element of it to like really stand out. And, and you go in the galleries and you buy these paintings and they're, they're imitation. They're numbered, you know, 10 out of 1,000 or 500 or however many. And in Thomas Kincaid's case, he would take and they would take some flower petals or different elements of it and they would touch up some of those things with some actual paint over the print. But what you're actually buying is a print of an original. You, if you get and you go to a gallery and you buy a print of a Thomas Kincaid, depending on the size, for that print, for that copy, you're still going to pay, in some cases, a few thousand dollars. And in almost all cases, several hundred dollars. But if you get an actual original painting, you're going to pay tens of thousands of dollars. That's a one of a kind. There's only one original. Now listen, we're never going to be Jesus, but we can be Christ-like. And we can, and the point is this, that we're valuable. That our walk with God is valuable. It brings value. And basically when the disciples come to him uh, and ask him, and they've already heard him say this in the Sermon on the Mount, but in Luke chapter 11, and he gives it almost word for word. It's not exactly word for word, but it's really close. Uh, and, and Luke 11 in the first four verses, and it came to pass is that he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. <coughs> Listen, it's not like they didn't know how to pray. It's not like they grew up in a culture where prayer wasn't a normal thing. But they never prayed like Jesus prayed. There was something different. And so they come to him and they say, teach us to pray. And he said unto them, when you pray, pray our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As in heaven, so in earth, and give us day by day our daily bread, uh, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so uh, you go through here, and, and it's, it's and I'm, again, I'm not going to re-preach the message from a couple of weeks ago, but it's very systematic about how we should pray. Not that we should be mechanical in our prayer. But it, it's a very structured thing that he gives us. And so when we talk about fervent, we're talking about being zealous. Now listen, we do not need zealots, but we do need to be zealous for God. A zealot is someone that's just obnoxious and judgy and in your face and manipulative and controlling. They're fighters by nature. They're, uh, they're someone that wants to force their agenda and their ideas upon you. We don't need zealots. Jesus had one in his group of disciples, Simon, and, and he changed them. He didn't leave them the same way. But we, need to be, we don't need to be zealots, but we do need to be zealous. There ought to be some energy about us, some, some drive in us, some desire to get to know God. And to be fervent is that. It is to be zealous. So to be effectual, to be, to be working, to become, and to be becoming effective, uh, to be active and engaging, uh, to be zealous or to be 
having a, a, a fire in us, a relationship that's growing, that's kindling, that's boiling over. And then he says to be righteous. And it comes from a word that means justice. And so you say, well, pastor, I'm supposed to go out and invoke justice. No, Jesus took care of that when he died on the cross. Justice was served. Our sins are forgiven. If I receive him as my savior and he forgives my sin, I have the righteousness of Christ imputed or put on my account, imputed to me or put on my account. I stand in the righteousness of Christ. What it means in this sense is simply this. It is, it is to come in perfect agreement between God's, my nature and, and my acts. In other words, how I am and how I think and what my values are, are brought into harmony with God's and his character, his motive. And so when we talk about righteous, a righteous man, we're talking about a man or a woman uh, who has come to the place where they're in agreement in their heart and in their spirit with the principles of God's person and his word. I'm no longer fighting against the word of God. I'm yielded to the word of God. So pastor, what are you talking about? I, I'm talking about just simply this and illustrate it simply that if I'm in a place where God's dealing with me about something and I'm still rebellious or resistant to it, God's dealing with me about something in my life that I need to get rid of. Or God's dealing with me in something in my life that I'm not doing that I need to start doing. I need to engage in. And God's just convicting me. And it's like everywhere I go, I can't get away from it. It's like the Spirit of God is hounding me. And He's just, I, I'm not going to be righteous. I'm righteous in the sense if I'm a Christian in my relationship with God. But I'm not righteous in, in the sense of my prayer life and that my spirit and His Spirit are in agreement with one another. Does that, that make sense? And so, <clears throat> I'm trying to make this too complicated, but <clears throat> righteousness here has to do with the idea that my spirit, that my values, that my mind have yielded to the spirit of God and to the word of God. And he's brought me through this relationship into agreement with who and what he is so that we're on the same page. If we're not as a church on the same page, we're not going to get anything accomplished. If, if any business is in its leadership levels and even down to the worker on the factory floor, they're only going to be as successful as they are buy-in to the principles and to the practices of, of the organization. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they always agree with everything that's going on, but they understand that in an organization there has to be some agenda that's set forth and maybe this isn't the way that I would do it, but I'm going to fully support this because this is where my employment is or this is the church that God has led me to uh, in a spiritual sense. And so uh, what he's saying is, is that in my relationship with God, I'm no longer arguing with God, fighting with God, resisting God. When God speaks to me, I yield to him and therefore we become on the same page. The effectual or the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man. Someone whose spirit is in harmony with the spirit of God. Availeth much. The word availeth means to have or exercise force. To be strong or to prevail. In other words, it means to have enough power with God to be able to persuade God. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man can persuade God. Now stop and think about 
Pastor, you've lost your mind. God is God. He is. Genesis chapter 20 and verse 17. Abraham's prayer brought healing. In Exodus, or excuse me, in Numbers chapter 11 and verse number 2. Moses' prayer brought mercy. In Joshua chapter 10 and verses 12 and through 14, Joshua's prayer brought victory. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 22, we see how God could work in our lives in prayer whenever he, whenever he says there, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. I'm on the same page. Now understand what I'm saying this morning is that you and I can be effective in our prayer to the point that we can persuade God to heal, to work in someone's heart, to provide a need. So, Pastor, I prayed like that all the time and God hasn't answered that prayer. Well, perhaps you're not praying righteously. You're not in sync with God. You're not on the same page. Perhaps there's sin in your life that you're harboring that's hindering. Perhaps my will and God's will are not the same. Therefore, I'm not really praying righteously because I'm, we're out of sync with one another. In other words, I believe this, and I believe the Bible teaches this, that if, if uh, Brother Billy's praying for this great deliverance for something in his life and, uh, and, this, and this great need that he has in his life, and the Spirit of God in, in his prayer and in his, in his connection there, uh, in, the, in the conversation through prayer, the Spirit of God is confirming to him, yeah, I, I want to do this for you. Or as he prays and lays his heart out, the Spirit of God comes and says, I will do this for you. Then an answer to prayer comes because we're on the same page. If I, when I was buying my house and uh, we came to the agreed upon price uh, with, uh, with the sellers and then the, uh, the mortgage company brokers and all of the things and the steps that you got to go through with inspections and all that come in. When I showed up at the closing, I had no expectation that at the closing they would say the deal isn't going to go through. No, everything had already been agreed upon. Everything had already been approved. But we still had to sign up and execute the document. And the sellers had to sign up, show up and execute the document. And once that was executed, it was done. And, and really what he's communicating here is this, is that in my labor of prayer, in my relationship with God, as the Spirit of God leads me, as I come into agreement with His Spirit and my Spirit, you can't spend time with God and Him not change you. When God begins to communicate to me through the Word and through prayer and through preaching and through relationships, this is what I want to use your life for. This is what I want to do in your life. And I then begin to pray for God to help me to be effective of that. I should not be surprised when it's executed and God comes through in a great way. Why? Because the, right, the, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And so as we look at that this morning, I'm just going to real quickly now give you our, our outline this morning. We'll be done. I want you to consider with that background knowledge these things. Number one, prayer will change your paradigm. Prayer will change your paradigm. A paradigm is just simply the way in which you see the world. And sometimes we need a paradigm shift. I read a book several years ago. And I try to reread it on a, on a, for years I read it every year. And I, I try to reread it on a regular basis. And <coughs> at least every two or three years, it's called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's written by uh, a businessman who actually was a Mormon. His name is Stephen Covey. He uh, was killed in a biking accident in the 70s. He's out mountain biking and fell and hit his head on a rock and died. 
very successful motivational speaker for years. And, and, and one of his books, and then that particular book, he's telling the story about how uh, as a young man, he's on a train, on a subway, actually, I believe it was in New York City, if I remember correctly. And, and he's tell, it's either him or he's telling the story of someone that related this to him. He's on there, and this, man's, uh, this man is really frustrated with a guy that's a, 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 a partner with him or, or a co-passenger with him. There's a man across from him who has got five or six kids, and they're completely out of control. They're climbing around on the floor. They're, they're bothering everyone. They're being loud. They're being mischievous. And the, and the father is sitting there and he's doing nothing. He's just sitting there hanging his head. And this man's relating the story about how as they ride and the ride progresses, he's just getting angrier and angrier and angrier until finally he's a couple of stops from where he's going to get off and he just can't take it anymore. And he looks at the man, the man makes eye contact, he says, sir, won't you please do something with your children? And the man, his eyes filled up with tears and he looked at him and he said, I'm so sorry. He said, their mother just died a couple of hours ago. And I'm trying to figure out how I'm gonna tell him. And I just was lost in. And he said, my rage immediately turn to compassion. Why? Because I saw something in a different light and my paradigm shifted. May I say to you this morning that when you enter into a life of prayer with God, that he'll change your paradigm. That he'll shift how we see things. What will he change? Well, first of all, it'll change how you view God. In Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 3, and understand Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was a prophet that never saw one, one convert. I, I've actually heard theologians talk about what a failure Jeremiah was because he never saw a convert. Listen, Jeremiah did exactly what God called him to do. For as long as God called him to do it, he witnessed the destruction of his beloved city. The entire book of Lamentations is his broken heart over the destruction. He preached the truth, and it wasn't on him that the people wouldn't respond. But in Jeremiah 33, 3, he said, call unto me and I will answer thee. He's preaching to the people what God's message is. And they're surrounded by the enemy. They're about to be destroyed. And get, God says to them, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Listen, the things that God would do for us if we would walk with him in prayer are indescribable. They're unimaginable. Call unto me. He, he, there's nothing for him to answer until we call. There's nothing for him to show until we engage in the relationship. How I view God will be changed by my walk with him. Not only will prayer change my paradigm about God, but it will change my paradigm about myself. You know, most of the time that's a good thing. If you grew up in a, with a lot of difficulty, you, you, you came into adulthood as we all do with a lot of issues that really dog us for a lifetime. I, I'm, I, I'm aware, painfully, of some of mine. There are, there are things that I experienced in childhood that create struggles and uh, all kinds of problems for me even as an adult. I can't imagine how they would impact my life if I didn't know the Lord and didn't walk with the Lord and didn't try to serve Him. And they're not an excuse for my failure in adulthood. 
They're not, they're not an, a, 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 a way to validate a bitter spirit or a bitter heart or whatever, an angry spirit. But at the same time, they're there and undealt with, they're going to impact me. I'm just saying this morning that if you walk in with God in prayer, it will change your view of yourself. And Psalm 51.10, David has committed the most horrible of sins. He's committed adultery. Uh, he's been deceitful. He's forced his, uh, he, he's killed a man that he forced to take his own, carry his own death warrant to the battlefront. He forced his commander to murder a man on his behalf uh, simply because he was trying to cover up his sin. Uh, David's sin is horrid. But he goes to God and he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, in Psalm 51, verse 10, and renew a right spirit within me. God, renew me. Change me. Restore me. How you view God and how you view self will be impacted by a prayer life with God. How I view others will be shifted. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks to that idea in chapter 5 and verse number 44. When he says, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. I'm not to look at those that, that cause me great harm with hatred and to seek vengeance. I am to look at them and love them as Jesus did, realizing that in fact they're not the enemy. The God of this world is the true enemy. Someone wrongs you, a pastor, but they knew what they were doing. Maybe they did. But they got there because of the influence of the God of this world. If you want to be angry, be angry as hate. But love your enemy. Carry the gospel to them. Be, such, be, such, be in such a way to them that it draws them to Christ. So what do I do? Well, prayer will change <coughs> how I view others. It changes my paradigm. It's how I see the world. Secondly, prayer will change your parameters. In other words, the rules that govern my life. The things that <clears throat> funnel me. I would say this this morning, that prayer will change your speech. One of the first things when I got right with the Lord that God cleaned up was my mouth. Amen. You say, Pastor, there are words that you didn't say. Listen, I realize the culture that we live in today. I, I realize today that, that people, when I was a kid, I mean, the, the, the language and the adults in our family at that time before uh, family members got saved and got in church was pretty vile. But even then, there were some words that men did not use in front of women and children. There were some words that a Christian ought not use that would be used in general conversation, but there was a line that was never crossed. That line does not exist today. There were things that my parents would watch and my uh, aunts and uncles and things would watch on TV that they would not watch until the kids were gone to bed. And if we were up, we weren't allowed to come in the room if they were watching something. Now, truth be told, they shouldn't have been watching it. But at least they had enough sense to not expose us to it as children. Uh, and so, and the Lord wasn't a part of our lives at that point. And, uh, and so, one of the things that changed, though, uh, whenever, whenever people in the family started getting saved, is language started cleaning up. There are, there, there are curse words that ought not be used by Christians. And by the way, there are Christian curse words that Christians ought not use that are just simply a simulation on a lesser level, uh, things that we ought not say. Uh, and so why? Because it's not helping anybody come to Christ. 
And there are a lot of words that I hear even some of our Bible college students use, and I'm just like, whoa, how in the world are you saying that? How did you get through college being allowed to say things like that in the dorm? I mean, my own kids came back from Bible college saying words that we never allowed them to say in our home. They weren't curse words, but they still were not appropriate words that ought to be coming out of somebody's mouth that's walking with the Lord. Why? Because I'm a representative of Christ. And what I'm saying is, is that prayer will change your speech. And when you spend time talking to God, pretty soon you begin to talk to other people with the same language with which you speak to God. If I can't say it to God, I shouldn't say it to someone else. If it's a word that I wouldn't use in, di in my dialogue with God, I shouldn't use that word in dialogue with someone else. And by the way, he hears you anyway. Prayer will change your speech. It's amazing how quiet it gets. Prayer will change your conduct. I can't pray like this and it not change my behavior. In Psalm 55, 17, we look here. He says this, evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to go to the Lord in prayer in the morning and know that I'm coming back again at noon. And, and I'm not saying this morning that you've got to rearrange all your schedule and you have to pray evening, morning, and no or morning, noon, and evening. But it wouldn't hurt. There's not a biblical mandate that we, the, the biblical mandate is that we pray without ceasing. And so when we look and we understand what he's saying, I'm just saying it will change your conduct. In Daniel chapter 6 and verse number 10, Daniel is being threatened to either change your lifestyle or be thrown in a den of lions. If you go to that window, Daniel, and you pray like you do in the morning and at noon and in the evening, then, then you're going to get thrown into a den of lions and be devoured. Uh, and Daniel the, knew the decree was signed and he went to his window and he opened it like he always did. He didn't close it. He didn't try to hide. He did everything that he always did right before the command was given. And he put down his mat and he knelt out the window looking toward Jerusalem and he prayed to God. And he went to the lion's den. But God met him there. And the mouths of the lions were shut. Oh, pastor, the mouths of the lions. The lions weren't even hungry. They'd been fed. No. Because the very king that signed the proclamation loved Daniel and was deceived into signing it. And whenever he went the next morning, he couldn't undo the law. But he was the first one to get there the next morning. And when he got there and he unsealed the den and he saw that Daniel was still alive. And the very king that signed it is crying down into the den to Daniel and saying, did the God, the, the most high God, did your God save you? Was he able to save? Daniel said, oh, yes, king. He's able and mighty to save. And Darius pulled him out of the pit and took the men that deceived him into signing the decree and threw them. And all of a sudden, the lions were hungry. <laughs> the, pro the problem wasn't that the lions weren't willing. The problem is that God shut their mouths. Amen. Prayer will change your conduct. Prayer will change your circumstances. One man and God. There was a man, his last name was Lanthier. In 1857 in New York City, he owned a business <coughs> and he was a part of his church there and he really got burdened about a prayer meeting. And, and in the fall of that year, 1857, he started a prayer meeting. He had sold his business. He had become a volunteer worker at the church and he started this prayer meeting for businessmen. He was reaching out to businessmen. It was going to be at noon. And he wrote a handbill and he advertised it around the neighborhoods and 
uh, and it kind of gave the time that from this time to this time every day from 11 to 12 or 12 to 1, uh, there's going to be a prayer meeting at this address if you would like to come. Uh, and he, uh, he started this prayer meeting. And the first day, he was the only one there. And uh, within a week or two, a few people came in. And uh, within a month or so, the room was full. Uh, within three months, uh, they, had to, they were filling up three rooms. And by the time it was all said and done, in just a few months' time, there were at, at any given point uh, during lunchtime in New York City, 10,000 people praying. It sparked what's known as the Third Great Awakening or the Fulton Street Revival. The Fulton, the Fulton Street prayer meeting. It's estimated that as a result of that prayer meeting, which lasted uh, at least for a year, a million people trusted Christ in the next year. Or 3% of the population of the entire nation at that time. Can you imagine what would happen if 3% of the people in the United States of America gave their heart to Christ this morning? It says 3%, that's not much, Pastor. That would be transformative to the fabric of a nation. Count Zinzendorf in Germany years ago, in the medieval times practically, is credited with starting the Moravian Revival. And the Moravian Revival by those that study revivals is thought to have been started because of a prayer meeting. And certainly prayer played a big part in it. But what's not known, or at least not really preached or said much about, is the event that led to the prayer meeting. He's preaching. Count Zinzendorf is preaching to his people and they're in, in, humble, uh, in a humble estate. They're living in poverty. Uh, they, they don't have much at their disposal and he's preaching away and the spirit of God fell and before the service was over, people started getting up and going to one another and getting right with each other. This brother over here that had a problem with the brother over here went and got that squared away, got it right. Uh, a, a Christian lady here went and got something right and it went on for hours and it started a prayer meeting that lasted for 100 years. It changed their circumstances. I'm saying this morning that prayer will change our parameters. It'll change our speech, our conduct, our circumstances. And then lastly this morning, consider this, prayer will change your priorities. When, when you learn to pray, prayer becomes a priority. Priorities begin to change. John chapter 13 and verses 34 and 35 give just a brief, and I'm really oversimplifying this this morning uh, just for the sake of time. But in John, uh, in John chapter 13, in verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you and that you also love one another. This shall, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if ye have love one toward another. In Matthew chapter number 22, uh, he says essentially here uh, the same thing. In Matthew chapter 22 uh, and beginning in verse number 36. Uh, and so and we're almost done this morning. I'm just going to give you these couple of thoughts and we'll be finished. But in Matthew chapter 22 and verse number 36, uh, down through verse 40, he said this, but of that day and hour, knoweth no man not uh, by the heaven, or excuse me, am I on the right? 22. I'm in 24. Excuse me. Brain's still not quite clicking on all cylinders. Master, which is the great commandment of the law. And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. 
And the second is like unto it. He's got more than he bargained for. He only asked for one of these questions to be answered. But they're not, they're, they, can't, they don't stand alone, they're together. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I love that verse. I love the thought that the, that the hinges that swing the doors of the gospel are love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. What I'm saying this morning is this, praise uh, or prayer will change your priorities. What is the priority? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Jesus is first. We want self first. Sometimes we'll make Jesus second. But seldom do we demote self from first. It's, it's generally, okay, it's me. When I'm doing well, Jesus is second. And then others. When I'm not doing well spiritually, others are second and Jesus is third. It's an afterthought. But the real way is Jesus is first. And others are second. And then myself is last. Prayer will change your priorities. What are the priorities? Well, our priorities should be this. Jesus first. Always. Think what you will of Jerry Falwell. One of the, one of the things that he used to do in the 70s and, and the early 80s. Uh, if, whenever they were a lot closer to where we are now than they ended up. But uh, you would send in and, and make a pledge to give something to our ministry and then they would send you some kind of little token as a reminder. And one of the things that he sent was a Jesus first button. I remember everywhere I went, you'd see, you go to church, didn't matter where you went to church, you'd see uh, on the lapel pin of everybody's coat, Jesus first, Jesus first, Jesus first. Now I'm not advocating using the TV to kind of draw on money, but I am advocating keeping Jesus first. And what I'm saying this morning is just simply this, that if I walk with God in prayer, Jesus will be first. It'll be natural. It ought not be a struggle to keep Jesus first. It ought to be natural in the heart and life of a Christian. Jesus is first. And then naturally others will be second. Why? Because I'm always trying to, to, to give the gospel. I'm always looking for a way to share Christ, to build and strengthen someone's face, to help lift someone up uh, from the depths of where they are. Uh, it's others second. And then self last. Does that mean, Pastor, you're supposed to debase yourself? No. You're important to God. And God said, Jesus said, if you've got a need, ask. If you have desires, ask. I want to give you the desires of your heart so long as we're on the same page. You're important. But Jesus said, I'm first. Then others. Then you. So, Pastor, I, I can force that. I can fake that. I can, uh, I can conform to that. I'm not... I'm not we're not a church that, that tries to get people to conform. It's not what God did. It's not what Jesus did. And that's not why we're here. I know that that tends to be, in our type of church, that tends to be the way that it goes. Just come in and conform to the agenda. That does not make you spiritual. It doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you godly. It doesn't make you pleasing to God. Anybody can conform to anything at any time. What we're advocating here is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in which I come and I recognize my need. And I recognize his greatness and his power. And I accept what he has for me. And I follow his will with mine yielded to his. Seeking for God to do something in my life. So pastor, how does that happen? Well, pray. Why? Because when you learn to pray effectively. When you're willing to work at it. When you're willing to engage. When you're willing to become fervent. When you're willing to be righteous in the sense that I'm, I'm yielded to God and I'm on the same page that God's on. 
Your prayer has the power to change the heart and to impact the decisions of God. He did it to people, four people in the Bible, and he wants to do it for you. The question is, am I willing to pray the price? As Johnny Pope says, Pastor Anderson, will you pray the price? Am I willing to learn to walk with him? I hope that we are.